You know, um, parenting gives you a chance to relive some of your life experiences you had, whether good or bad. <clears throat> and I had forgotten, I think, before I had children, just how abject is the fear of being lost for a child. Uh, you know, it's sort of a regular feature of holiday shopping that your child sort of wanders off and gets separated from their parents, and mine, of course, were no different. Um, but I have this mental image of each of my children, their, their faces just penetrated with terror while a, a kindly store owner or maybe a, a nice security guard or something would bring them back uh, to us. I remember when I was working with RUF uh, at Ole Miss, our family would regularly go and just sort of roam uh, campus uh, during it just to spend time together. And on one occasion when my youngest, Luke, was very young and very adventurous, I might say, uh, we headed to go play and explore the student, of, student union. Great place to go hang out there. Well, as soon as we walked through the door, Luke just darted for the elevator this new magical box he had discovered that you just walk into, press a button somewhere, and you disappear and go someplace else. But as he darted across the room, his big sister and greatest protector, I might add, goes racing after him, right? But she was too late. All we can see from a distance is Luke standing in the elevator, having pressed who knows what button, and the door is just kind of slowly closing with him looking at us. And I had this middle image of Anna Gray sort of with her hands on the, on the elevator like this, just screeching in horror at the fact that her brother has now disappeared into the unknown. Thankfully, the union only has three floors, so we were able to divide, you know, and split up a search party and uh, hunt him down. And he's safe with us here now this morning. So. <laughs> and we laugh at stories like that because we think, man, is it nice to be older and not have to worry about being lost like that? But then I suddenly think, you know... I think the sense of being lost, either in the world or even in our lives, it really never goes away. Uh, it, it just gets more complicated, doesn't it? There's a part of me that thinks that it would be so nice if we could just find a kindly security guard, you know, and, and walk up to him and say, excuse me, sir, I, I don't have any idea what to do after graduation. Can you help? Um, sir, I, I just found out that my parents are divorcing. Can you explain to me how I'm supposed to feel at home now? You know, I've just moved into town with my small children, and I've never felt lonelier. Um, can you be my friend? My boss just said that the company is going to be downsizing. Do, can you tell me how I'm going to pay my bills? My husband just told me that he doesn't love me anymore. Where do I go if he leaves me? My teenager says that they are so broken that they just want to die. Do you know what I'm supposed to say to them now? Now, I would say we still feel lost. <laughs> the feeling of lostness, even in modern life, makes you long for the days when fears didn't loom quite as large. Life is just not simple. But as we've been looking at this story of how Jesus is compelling to his followers that would have made them leave all, I would submit to you this morning that one of the main reasons why he's attractive to people is because he's the kind of person who goes after lost things. And every one of us are lost. That's why he's compelling. There's a sense in which we are all lost. Some of us lost in life, not knowing where to turn. Others of us ultimately lost, having never found our heart's true home. Others who claim to know where true home is, but seem to rarely ever feel it. But Jesus goes after lost things. 
That's the encouragement of this passage. So I want to dive into this morning and see, A, how we are lost, first of all, and secondly, how we are found. For the sake of attribution, I, years ago, Sinclair Ferguson came to a, a staff training event when I was working for RUF and did a whole seminar on this parable for an entire day, and I have not recovered from it. Um, and I've taken a lot of comments from that day and filtered it through uh, Keller's fantastic little book, uh, The Prodigal God, which I would warmly commend to you for the content of this sermon. So first of all, how is it that we are lost? Well, this sort of gets us to what I think is the main misunderstanding about this passage that people oftentimes have. And it's simply this. We're used to hearing it titled as the prodigal son. But the truth is, the most important clue to understand this is that both of the brothers are lost. They're just lost in different ways. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, you'll see that Jesus is speaking to two different groups. On the one hand, he's got the tax collectors and the sinners. But on the other hand, he's got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In his last parable, Jesus is saying that these two here are in fact two fundamental ways of representing how you can be lost. Both of them signs of how people run away from God. They represent two fundamental ways of rebelling from God. Let's take the younger brother first. The younger brother is lost because he's committed to himself and no one else. You might have to dig a little bit to realize just how offensive the younger brother's request of his father really was. Because in that patriarchal society, half of the inheritance would have been half of the father's livelihood. It would have been his very life. That word that you have translated property in verse 12 there is the Greek word bios, from which we get the word life. In other words, the younger brother says, give me your life. Give me the very thing that you take joy in, Father. It's not a nice, it's not a bad summary for what the younger brother's spirit is. Give me, give me, because I want to, I want to run my life on my terms and no one else's. And so this is the first way of running away from God. The younger brother represents the person who's looking around at the conventions around them and just wants to shake them off. They're tired of being told what to do. Or they've established a pattern that sort of keeps people out of their business in general. They venture out on their own. They make their own rules. They make life their way. But I do think it's a mistake to, if you think that younger brothers are so easily identified as like, you know, the wild partiers who are out there wasting their time and their money on themselves. I think the spirit of the younger brother is actually a little bit more subtle than that. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I read an article about someone who was talking about the change uh, in, in, in core adult values between the generation that grew up in the 60s and 70s and the generation that has grown up in the 90s and beyond. Because for that earlier generation, the, the, the most fundamental core value was being good. Are you a good person? Do you live a life that's worthy? But for this generation that's come up, the core, most fundamental value this author was saying was actually being free. Free in the sense that no one can really tell me what it is that I need to do. And, and, and it's almost as if this upcoming generation has sort of taken the next step and gotten a whole lot more vigilant, you know, sort of armed with this, <laughs> with a weaponized, you know, social media uh, behind them. What this generation is saying is that you must conform yourself to my attitudes towards me and in accordance with my self-understanding. 
How dare? How dare you impose your views, your values upon me, especially religious values that nobody can agree upon anyway? Only I can decide what's right for me. Only I am going to find happiness in the way that I choose. To put it simply, give me. Give me. And so there's no way in a room like this that there aren't at least two things happening. For many of us, we made a commitment years ago to follow my heart, to pursue my dreams, to get what I want out of life and live it exactly as how I want it to go. Living as if God is going to judge me eventually by whether I held to my principles of my life. And you've been, pursu- you've been sincere in the pursuit of yourself. But I wonder if you've ever had the experience that the younger brother had in verse 17 when it says, when he came to himself. What does that mean? What does it mean to come to oneself? Well, I would suggest to you that there is this unsilenceable voice, a voice that the Puritans used to call the conscience, that is giving you these these regular bulletins of where you stand with the world. They usually come to you in those quiet moments, you know. They're delivered the morning after in the shower when you wake up and you replay the tapes of the night before and whatever it was you were involved in. They sort of delivered you on your, in your car on your way out of town to your next business trip as you contemplate how to hide the secret life you've been living. But you're working on silencing that voice. You drink a lot. You overwork at your office. You plant yourself in front of a television and binge because you deserve it. However you decided to quiet that voice, though, is in many ways irrelevant. Because when it comes down to it, the attempt to suppress those voices is a way of running away from God. It's the spirit and the heart of the younger brother that longs to get out from under whatever he says and to say to God and to his face, give me my life on my terms. But there's another group likely in this room, though, that I think uh, is thinking to themselves right now, wow, boy, if only, you know, if only that younger brother that I know was in this room this morning so they could get their life together. Sure wish they were here for this. And what's interesting about this parable is I've come to believe that actually this parable is more about you than it is about the younger brothers. It's almost as if there's an assumption that the younger brothers are in the far country. This one's for us, older brothers. And it's directed much more. Why? Well, my premise is this, is that the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. He's just as alienated from his father's heart as the younger. The older brother has simply chosen a different path to his own happiness. The path of moral conformity. That is, he's going to play it by the rules. He's the one who's going to stay home. And now, he deserves what he's got coming to him. As a matter of fact, his father owes it to him. But do you see how his obedience to his father's rules in the end is just as selfish as what the younger brother said? Because he's using his good behavior in order to leverage the favor of his father to force his hand. In, In his book, The Prodigal God, Keller says this. He says, the two hearts of the brothers are the same. Both of them resented their father's authority and sought ways from getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position which they could tell their father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled. But one did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. 
Both, though, were alienated from the Father's heart, and therefore both are lost sons. But there's a real sense in which like, the two are not exactly equal. What's fascinating is the older brother's predicament is a little bit more serious. Why? Well, because the reason lies in the fact that the entire sort of story arc of the Bible has been trying to tell everyone created in God's image that you are lost. We are all lost, older and younger brother alike. But here's the difference. The younger brother has got a little bit of empirical evidence to boot, <laughs> to demonstrate the fact. He's, fe- he's, feeding, he's in a pigsty, feeding pigs in slop. He's got something. He knows that he's broken. The older brother does not have a good sense of it. So there's a sense in which the older brother is almost, can we say this, more lost than the younger brother? And so suddenly what happens throughout this older brother is a portrait begins to emerge of in many ways a far more deadly form of rebellion that's coming out of the older brother's life. What does it look like to be an older brother? Let me throw out a couple of thoughts here that I think are in this parable for us. The first thing you can identify an elder brother by is the fact that you're angry and constantly comparing yourself to other people. In verse 28, he basically is saying to his father, others have life better than me. And they don't deserve it. Not like I do. And so that the misery that we feel from life issues not from how you interpret your life, but from how well your circumstances are serving you. So in our prayers, we say to God, you know, God, if you would just give me a raise. If you just relieve me of these these kids who are such a pain. If you would just give me a, a better spouse who wasn't so lazy. In other words, God, if you would do your part, then I would be okay. It's God's fault that my life is bad. Notice the elder brother doesn't want others to receive grace because his God is not gracious. It's not issued forth in as much. And when it comes down to it, the old brother hasn't been working for the delight of his father at all. He's been working for himself. All of his good deeds were to get something, hopefully the approval of his father. Here's Keller again. He says, people who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that anger, when it roots itself inside a heart, will begin to look for someone to blame. Someone to sort of point fingers at for why my life is not going the way that it should. And an easy target can be an entire people group, an entire race. Or perhaps an entire religion that marches in New Zealand to gun down 50 innocent worshipers. Where does that begin? It begins in the spirit of the elder brother who is looking down. They believe they've earned, they've done enough. And it means that if there's anger at the heart, you don't know how to forgive people. Terrible at forgiving people. And quite honestly, very unpleasant to be around because eventually somewhere, that anger is going to get out. You ever been around someone who, who has had an irrational explosion on you? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend. But have you ever listened to that rant and realized that that was just not um, congruent with what just happened? 
and think to yourself, was that about me, what you're angry at? Or was that about you? The older brother has a boiling anger on the inside that's wrecking themselves. The anger is the first. Secondly, though, they hate the law that they're obeying. Look at verse 29. The older brother says, you know, to his father, all these years I've served you, never disobeyed your commands. I actually think the NIV translation gets us a little bit closer to the spirit of the passage when he says, all these years I've slaved for you, and I never disobeyed one of your orders. Is that the way you talk to a a loving, kind father? But the older brother tips his hand because he shows that he relates to his father as if he's a cruel taskmaster. His obedient life is begrudged. It's annoying. And this is so important because the Bible actually is just as concerned with why you are obeying as it is that you are obeying. A Christian is one who lives by Psalm 1, for his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. But the elder brother obeyed so that he could get something else. The elder brother says, I've obeyed, but I've never gotten blank. What what, what do you fill that blank in with? Because if what he's saying is right, that is what our God actually is. In other words, any condition that I put on my obedience is God to me. So what could it be? He wasn't after the Father. He wasn't after the Father's heart. He wasn't after the affection and love of the Father extended to someone by grace. He was after what he could get out of it. So secondly, you've got this problem that exists of hating the law that they're trying to obey. But then third, there's zero assurance of his salvation in the heart of an elder brother which counterintuitively makes you really look down on other people. Why is it that the older brother never asked his father for a party? (laughs) As long as you're trying to earn your salvation, though, by your own goodness, then you're never going to be sure that you've ever done enough to gain that approval. Or worse, if if it was your works that got you in, then it's your works that'll get you out of favor just as easily. Every time I don't get a prayer answered, you know, it's because I'm not living right in some area. We ride a roller coaster of his affection for me, which basically screams to say that if I have somehow stepped out of his grace in my life on the basis of some demerit in my life, doesn't that suggest that I had it all along because of some merit in my life? That's not right. But look, a lack of assurance has all kinds of negative effects on your soul. For starters, it means that you really can't take criticism. Someone who has no sense of assurance and is that insecure, the second that someone begins to even slightly push on your life, there is a wall of defensiveness that comes up. (laughs) I heard one preacher say this. They say, you know, you're unable to take criticism without being completely crushed by it, and you're unable to give criticism without having to crush somebody else works both ways in that regard. Of course, when we do fail, we're buried beneath guilt. And repentance is not a joy. (laughs) Repentance is a burden in that particular scheme. And in the end, it ends up draining your motivation to pray, does it not? Nobody wants to go and be around anyone around whom you feel guilt. And if I know that I've offended him and there's no relationship by grace, when I bow my head, the reason why I don't pray is because I'm not yet convinced that he's glad to see me. It may not be because of your lack of discipline that you don't pray. 
It might very well be the fact that you don't think someone is there to greet you with joy. And finally, it makes us a terrible evangelist. A lack of assurance means that most of the time when we actually do talk about our faith, it comes off as kind of packaged, a little bit stale, dry. It's because it is. Because the truth is, it's not something we're inviting into joy. Look, this is so profound to me. It's profound because Jesus never gives us the answer of the older brother. Did that bother you when we read it? You get to the end of Luke 15, you're being like, oh, wait, wait a minute, what did the older brother say? Like, what was the response? And as if Luke is saying, yeah, it's a good question. What is your response? Because all you're left with is a pleading father who is longing for his people to come and step in to the joy and the love that he has for him. Which is a great transition to my second point and final point. And that is how we are found. How are we lost? We are lost by running away from God, either through our irreligion or through our religion. Both paths get you to the same point. But how is it that we're found? Well, I think there's at least two things here. Number one, we are found when we own up to the original proposition. (laughs) And the original proposition is, you're lost. We all are lost. And there's no amount of rebelling or or fastidious law-keeping that's somehow going to make that problem go away. George Whitfield, the famous, uh, uh, famous uh, evangelist, used to say this. He was like, you know, you're not a Christian if you've only repented of your sin. Everybody repents of their sin if you acknowledge it to be sin. You're a Christian only when you've repented of your righteousness. That is, you've repented of the things that you think you're doing well. Whitfield would end up saying, God could condemn us for the best, most sincere prayer we've ever prayed. The best that we can do with that prayer is what the Bible calls filthy rags. And you do not want to know the literal translation of that. In the end, we have to own this proposition as a way of seeing my life that I'm lost. A humility that comes from admitting that I'm lost. We all stand in that posture before him. But secondly, you find the second point that I think is even more profound. One of the ways in which we're found is not just admitting that we're lost, but actually seeing that there's someone loving that's, been come, that's come to look for us. You know, in the beginning of, of Luke 15, you find that there's a lot of lost things that the whole chapter is about. You get a lost coin and a lost sheep. And in both of those cases, somebody goes after it. Somebody goes after the lost coin, the lost sheep. But you know, nobody comes after the younger brother. He has to kind of wake up himself. Providence draws him back. But in that society, who should have gone after him? Who was the one who was responsible to go after him? Well, the answer is the older brother. It should have been big brother that should have come after that little brother. Sinclair Ferguson says that by putting the the flawed older brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. You see, the older brother should have come in and said, look, my younger brother has been a fool. And his life is in ruins. But you know what? I'm going to go look for him. And I'm going to bring him home. And if he has spent all of his inheritance, as I think he has, I'm actually going to bring him back to the family at my expense. See what Jesus is saying. He's telling this story to sort of open up this longing inside of us to know that we have a true elder brother that comes and finds us. But here's the deal. I don't think that we're being honest if we don't admit that we are a room full of older brothers. Are we not? There's probably a couple of reasons for that. Number one is that you have, you have, you have hired 
a lead pastor who is the chief among elder brothers. That's probably reason one. But secondly, one of the reasons why we have to be a room full of elder brothers is because of just how rare it is. (laughs) How rare it is that we're bringing in younger brothers. See, we are supposed to be empowered to be finding other younger brothers (laughs) who have themselves wasted things, their own inheritance. And instead what we have to hear, but here's the deal, we never become those kinds of people until we hear the Father's approval. That's the trick. That's the message. It's not to beat myself and be like, oh, he's right. I should go be nice to somebody. Bring him to church. No. It's just a matter of hearing, truly and powerfully hearing the Father saying, everything I have is yours. Why won't you take it? (laughs) It's all here for you. Gene Fleming wrote Between Walden and the Whirlwind and talked about what it was like to grow up in church for her as a woman. Gentlemen, bear with me for a second. I want to talk to the ladies. She says, in 20-some years I've been a Christian, I've received instruction on and been challenged to, you ready for this? Read my Bible daily. Pray without ceasing. Do in-depth Bible study regularly. Memorize Scripture. Meditate day and night. Fellowship with other believers. Always be ready to give an answer to the questioning unbeliever. Give to missions and to the poor. Work as unto the Lord. Use my time judiciously. Give thanks in all circumstances. Serve the body using my gifts to edify others. Keep a clean house as a testimony. Thank you. Practice gracious hospitality. Submit to my husband. Love and train my children. Discipline other women. Disciple other women. Manage finances as a good steward. Involve myself in school and community activities. Develop and maintain non-Christian friendships. Stimulate my mind with careful reading. Improve my health through diet and exercise. Color coordinate my wardrobe. Watch my posture. And simplify my life by baking my own bread. And every time I read that, I always think to myself, man, is that the kind of message that people are getting from their churches? This load that gets placed. No wonder there's anger. You know, it reminds me of that very last scene in a favorite movie, The Help, when Abilene finally confronts the terrible Miss Hilly for just how awful she's been to people with her tidy and perfectly manicured life. Miss Hilly is the consummate older brother. She's got all the trappings of of the tidy life, but it all comes and breeds a contempt, a deep-seated contempt for those that are beneath her. She finally hears the truth, though, from Abilene at the end of the movie when she says, all you do is scare and lie and try to get what you want. You a godless woman. Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? What a profound question. Because being an elder brother is exhausting. It's exhausting. And here's why I'm framing this discussion this way. Because in the end, all of the anger and the disobedience and the grumpiness and the doubting of salvation and the defensiveness and the prayerlessness, it's all a symptom of not knowing how to receive His love. That's the symptom. But that's why there's good news this morning. Because there's a faithful older brother. 
Jesus is the better and true older brother who comes after us younger brothers. He's the one who brings the Father's love with all of its fullness. He's the one who comes after you. Why? Because he loves you. And that seems to me to be the hardest thing to get inside my heart. Am I alone in that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't think I am. But we do ask that you would dig that deep by whatever means possible. And maybe that your Holy Spirit falls on us and gives us a, a miraculous sense of your affection for your wayward children. Whether we are irreligiously wayward or whether we are religiously wayward. Would you let us see your smile this morning? That we might see your affection for people who are as broken as we are. And thereby draw us in. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.